It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Sun's almost up. Your attention, please. Listen to this carefully and keep calm. Let me put on the radio. Everybody's talking to each other. Everybody's tuned to Bradley J. Bradley J. They listen right till dawn. Midnight till five. Right until dawn. Everybody's now got something to say. What do you say? The radio is going all night long. Jay talking. Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. It's WBZ indeed. Jonathan McDowell, astrophysicist at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and a lot more, is with us to first tell us about himself, and then we'll get into his one of his n- numerous loves, the space program, and uh, particularly Apollo 11, as you might have guessed. Thanks for coming in. Uh, good to be here, Bradley. So what is it you do? You were just explaining it to me off the air. It's something that the folks would love to hear of it. What, so tomorrow you go to work, and what are you going to do? So I work at the uh, Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics up in uh, Cambridge, and um, uh, one of the main things I'm doing this summer is that we have uh, a dozen students who are undergraduates who are preparing to go to grad school, and we're, we're doing boot camp for grad school for them, teaching them to do astrophysics research, uh, and uh, all working on different projects. So I'm, balance- I'm jumping between that and uh, working with my team that develops... Uh, analysis methods for data from our Chandra Space Telescope, which is about a quarter of the way to the moon, and it's hunting for black holes uh, in deep space. Uh, And so we operate it out of a mission control center in Burlington, uh, and it sends us back great data on uh, weird things happening in space. Is it... What kind of telescope is it? A radio telescope? It's an X-ray telescope. X-ray telescope and looks for X-rays, obviously, it or the lack X-ray. of X-rays. Right. And so here's the problem with X-rays. The, the, the um, X-rays come across space. The things I'm studying, maybe for a billion years, they travel across space, and then in the last second before they reach Earth, they're stopped by the Earth's atmosphere. And so you just have to poke your nose a little bit above the Earth's atmosphere, and you can see all this stuff that never gets to the ground. So they don't get degenerated by anything, solar wind or... or- Sure. Gravity or anything? Um, ju- just gas in between us and, and the things we're looking at can sort of, you know, it's make it foggy, may uh, absorb some of the x-rays, but not enough to really stop them. So so we can actually see these things a uh, very long way away. So what does the telescope see to tell you that there's a black hole? So obviously, famously, right, you can't see the black hole. But what happens is as matter falls towards the black hole, the gravity... Squeeze of the black hole squeezes the matter, makes it hot, and so the the gas starts to glow bef- just before it falls down the hole, and it glows really hot. The gravity is so strong that you heat this gas to millions of degrees. So it has a particular spectroscopic signature. It does, and and that signature, it's when you heat stuff that high, it's going to shine really bright in X rays, and so we see the X rays from the matter just before it goes down the hole. And that's, that gives away that there's a black hole. Have you found one? Oh, we found about 300,000. So they're, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. In fact, there's almost every galaxy in the universe has an enormous black hole sitting in the middle. So it sounds like the galaxy 
at the black hole may be responsible for the galaxy? Well, that's, a, that's a really good question, and, and we've been trying to tease that out over the past 20 years since we realized that they were so common in this, this scenario, that is it the black hole that makes the galaxy or the galaxy that makes the black hole? And now our understanding is they sort of co-evolve. Uh, really? It's a bit of both. Um, right. I was going to say black hole creates galaxy. Put me down for that. Yeah. Well, what happens is you have a galaxy, right? Stars in the galaxy kind of give off gas at various stages. They blow up. They they shove gas through uh, through the galaxy. And it all kind of rolls downhill. And where's downhill in a galaxy? It's in the, the middle hole. of the galaxy. Yeah. And so it feeds, if you have a small black hole in the middle of the galaxy, all of this stuff from the rest of the galaxy it sort of flows down into it and makes it a big black hole. Uh, okay. Well, we need to save some time for the big event. The, uh, basically talking Apollo 11. And first I'd like to ask you about the calculations necessary to even begin this kind of thing, calculations that we probably never thought had to be made. So we talked about it prior. What what was your name for that basket of calculations? Well, so we have orbital dynamics. Yes. Yes. And we, then you had the plumbing. And the plumbing, right. Okay. So yeah. the orbital dynamics is which way do we point, uh, how far do we, how, how long do we fire the rocket engines, which way are we going? And and the plumbing is, you know, you, you have – all of this uh, volatile rocket fuel, you got to push it through high-pressure systems, ignite it, and make sure that that's all going to go well. And what you actually get is rocket moving up rather than things going bang. And and so as you, anyone who's seen pictures of the early space program, no, it didn't always go that well. So the orbital, orbital dynamics, can you drill down on on some of those dynamics? Right. So a lot of people don't understand what being in orbit is. So if you want to go to space... So there's a bunch of people now um, selling tourist tickets uh, to go up into space for about 10 minutes. Then you just go up about 100 miles, and you come back down again. Uh, and that's going to start happening in the next few years. Do you get to go for free? But, last not. I tried to, tried that one on, but it didn't fly. Okay, you can uh, still keep trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, so, um, uh, but then, you know, what happens when you get up 100 miles, you know, you're in space, but then you'll just fall back down again. So what you do instead is you fi keep firing your rocket, but instead of going up, you go sideways. Right. And you want to go sideways at 18,000 miles an hour. And if you can do that, then you can switch your rocket off. Once you hit the magic speed, you're going so fast that when you start falling toward the Earth, you're going so fast sideways that the Earth curves away from you as fast as you fall towards it because the Earth is round. So the trick is you go at exact speed that has you falling just enough. Just enough. So you don't. So you never keep get going. any closer to the Earth. Right. And so but you, you don't, fall all the way around the Earth. Right. And that's orbit. And is there any? Are there any natural forces that would slow you down, or do you have to give it a little gas once in a while? Yeah, because so you know the atmosphere doesn't like stop with a with a hard edge, right? And so there's very very little air out there, but you're going at eighteen thousand miles an hour. So it doesn't. If you imagine sticking your head out the car window <laughs> through a wind that's going 18,000 miles an hour relative to you, you know, that, that, that's going to hurt. Yes. And, and so it doesn't take much air at that speed to slow you down. So, for example, the International Space Station, which is a few hundred miles up, traveling at this enormous speed, every couple of months they have to squirt the gas jets a bit okay. to make up a mile or so that they've fallen. So more dynamics. We've gotten into orbit, but... Uh there must nothing have is just random. There must be a reason for the, the 
the place that they launch from, a reason for the time. What are some of those factors? Right. So one of the fun things about Apollo 11 is, so where do they launch from? Everyone knows they launch from the east coast of Florida, right? Uh, uh, from uh, Cape Canaveral. And uh, funnily enough, Jules Verne, when he wrote the book uh, De la Terre à la Lune, From the Earth to the Moon, back in the uh, 18-somethings, uh, his canon to send people to the moon came from like 10 miles from there. Really? It was his, his prediction. He, he said, oh, yeah, we're going to launch from Florida. And it's because you, the, the first thing you want to do is you want to launch heading east. Because the Earth spins toward the east, so you get a free ride. So you want to get about catapulted a, a little hour. bit. So you want you want to go east rather than west. Almost every country in the world launches east for their satellites. Only one launches west. And uh, would that be someone near the pole, so, where it's not so much of a factor? No, it's uh, actually Israel. Because okay. if they launch east, they start a war. All right. Does that? Uh, how much of a problem does that? Well, so that means they, they have to use they more fuel for the same rocket. They, yeah, they get much smaller satellites because they, they lose that, that oomph. They're going against the grain. Huh. Uh, so, but that's better than starting a war. So, so we do Florida because that's as close to the equator it, as you can get and be in the U.S. Yeah, so you want to be close to the equator. You want to, be, you want to have a long, empty piece toward the east okay. so that your rocket stages don't drop on your friends. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so, so Florida's the obvious place there. So you need, you, being near the equator is helpful because you're catapulted faster? Right. So if you think about, suppose you're right near the North Pole, you're actually not moving very fast, right, as you go around, right. as the Earth spins. If you're standing on the North Pole, you're really not moving at, moving all. at all. Right. You're just kind of going around like a, a, a guy on the top of a wedding cake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas if you're the equator, you're going about 1,000 miles an hour. Okay. And so different latitudes in between, you're going faster and faster as you go toward the equator. So you want to be close to the equator to get the maximum benefit. It doesn't make that much difference, to be honest. So if the Earth all of a sudden stopped, the guy at the equator that would is, be bad. is flung off, but if someone's standing with their feet very together at the exact North Pole, they might not even fall down. They'd be fine. Okay, good to know. Except, of course, weird things would happen to the weather pretty soon. <laughs> okay, I interrupted oh, you and I hope I didn't ru already, so. ruin your uh, inertia there. So. No, that's right. Um, yeah, so anyway, so, so, so there's a bunch of reasons why uh, for... A typical satellite launch, Florida is a really good place for a launch site, at least the East Coast, where you can launch. And the other great thing about Florida, actually, is there's a whole chain of islands that go toward the east. And so they were able to put tracking stations okay. on, you know, the Bahamas and Grand Turk and these various other, uh, and all the way out to Ascension Island in the middle of the Atlantic. And, and so they could, in the days before communication satellites, they could track the rocket as it, as it went along the, the launch path. And so that was very handy. We have a couple of minutes to the break, but we can get started on the, the dynamics on the other end, things to consider when landing. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, when I was doing uh, a flight training, which I did for a while, I didn't get as far as getting my license, but I did enough to learn that taking off is much less scary than landing. Because if you, you can do it wrong taking off, you hit the wrong part of the air. If you, if you and landing, if you hit the wrong part of the ground, that hurts. Yeah. Um, so uh, and the same is true in spaceflight to some extent. Um, so so in landing, uh, you know, if you're landing on the moon, that's actually a lot easier than landing on the Earth because you don't have the atmosphere to worry about. Um, and uh, and so you just have to. You're going at this fantastic speed in the gravity of the moon, and you just have to slow down at the right moment 
to uh, to come to a stop on the surface. And so uh, they uh, first you get into an orbit that only goes about 10 miles above the surface of the moon. And then you just power down down uh, until you're you know just a couple hundred feet above the surface. And you, you, you fly on down. And then, of course, in Apollo 11, Armstrong at the last minute saw that the computer was taking him into a boulder field. Nope. Yeah, they overshot by about four miles, I guess. Right, yeah. Well, he was like flying around going, oh, no, don't want to land there. Let's find somewhere nicer to land. And uh, it was very, you know, it was pretty low on fuel and finally found a place to, to set down. And so well, we're right in the middle of the, the the anniversary of that, right? That's right. So today was the, the uh, or yesterday was the anniversary of the launch. Uh, and uh, this weekend is the anniversary of the landing. Jonathan McDowell, astrophysicist at Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics is graciously agreed to come and hang out with us, and we're going to take full advantage of that. So where are they right now 50 years ago? Right. So they're, uh, let's see, it's the uh, uh, just past midnight on the 18th Eastern time. Um, so they would have been about halfway to the moon. Uh, so after launch, right, they're in orbit around the Earth. They have... Um, about a 120-ton spaceship, of which 60 tons is rocket fuel that ignites to push them to this incredible speed to push them out toward the moon. How fast? Um, so 25,000 miles an hour. And and so they're zipping out. And, of course, that's to start with. And as, as you throw something up in the air, right, it slows down. Yep. And then and the trick is, so they're, they're rising and rising and rising uh, and if the moon wasn't there, eventually they'd slow down and they'd fall back down again. But before they do that, they get to the point where the moon's gravity is stronger than the Earth's gravity. Ooh, how far out is that? So and, the moon's quarter of a million miles away, right? Two, right. 250. How far do you get before you're in lunar gravity? Lunar, right, the lunar sphere of influence, we call it. Okay. Um, which is about uh, 40,000 miles from the moon. So so it's it's most of the way to the moon already. The, the moon's kind of pathetic compared to the Earth, okay. right? It's yeah. 80 times less mass. And and so um, the sphere of influence of the moon is much smaller than the, the sphere of influence of the Earth. So, so you get most of the way there before you start falling toward the moon instead of, you know, so suddenly it's kind of weird to think about, right? Because it's like up has become down. Right. Versus, so what, uh, is what, there even an up and down when you're out there? Um, well, not if you're in free fall, right? Just the same as there isn't, uh, you know, if you're in a falling elevator, right? Or jump out of a plane. Yeah. There isn't really an up or a down until you hit the ground. Right. And there's a, then there's a down in a big way. Yes. And, and so, so you don't notice up and down in that sense, but, but there is in the sense that, you know, the earth is pulling from you on you in one direction and the okay. moon is pulling. So as, once you get close enough to the moon that its gravity is dominating, that's down, baby. And you're going to head that direction if you if you don't have enough speed to be escape velocity from the moon. And and so they, they plummet toward the moon. So this stage, 50 years ago, they were still on that, you know, arcing up from the Earth. And about uh, sometime tomorrow, they'd start falling toward the moon. And then as they fall behind the moon, so they just miss it, they fire their engines to slow down. Just enough. Just enough to get into orbit around the moon. What's that speed, lunar orbit? So uh, that speed's like a few thousand miles an hour. It's much slower uh -huh. than the, the, the Earth orbit speed. Um, and so they, they go around a couple <coughs> times, and what are they doing while they're... Yeah, so it takes about two hours to go around the moon. 
and so they were they were in lunar orbit for about a day um and just checking out systems mostly packing their lunches for the yeah. lunar module so they you know the three astronauts land and uh, launch in this thing called the command module columbia uh and then two of them neil and buzz crawl through the tunnel into the lunar module uh and uh with their lunar space suits and uh, all the stuff they're going to need for their their little jaunt to the lunar surface and and so then they close the hatches and separate from the columbia and so mike collins sits in the columbia all on his own how do they separate by the way are there explosive bolts or or do they just push it off or is there like right. release something and fire their I think rockets there's little jets and okay. springs okay i'm not quite sure the exact mechanism but i don't I don't think it's explosive bolts because it's a re. They can dock and redock okay. in that system, so it's a reusable thing. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, uh, but they often do use that kind of stuff if you're just going to separate once, right? Back then, everything was so much more mechanical rather than digital. So they probably had these latches that they unlatched by hand, right? Um, when I, they dock, they probably crank something down like like I, the porthole of a right, right. ship. Well, I think when they redock, right, what they do is. They, they have an automatic system, which they then go in, they by hand take the docking probe out of the tunnel so that they can get through it okay. and things like that. So th there is there is a lot of manual stuff. It's, it's, it's kind of a mix, but it's certainly not computer controlled for the most part. And uh, and so, so you know, they're, they're flying the lunar module now separately from the command module. And then they uh, on uh, the 20th, so uh, that's two days from now, 50 years ago, uh, they go down to the lunar surface and become the first humans to be on the surface of another world. So there's a descent, a power descent at some point that they begin from about 30,000 feet. Can you talk about some of the things that went on in that 12 minutes or whatever time frame that was from, okay, here we right. go, we're going down yeah. now. Yeah. Are they going straight down? Not really. They're no, no. still are orbiting. They're going down while going around. Yeah. Most of their speed is actually horizontal mm -hmm. relative to the lunar surface. So they're going around the moon, but slowly getting closer. And, and slowly slowing down. And slowly slowing down. And so uh, they're, they're um, flying. This is sort of not too, over the Sea of Tranquility, not too far from the lunar equator. Um, and it's by, you know, you can, you can pretty much see the Sea of Tranquility with the naked eye. Uh, when the moon is full, um, you're uh, you're zipping over the lunar surface and uh, adjusting your speed uh, to go through this sort of corridor of of being uh, fast enough not to crash into the mountains, <laughs> uh, but but still slowing down so you can get lower. And at a certain point, the computer is is going to get you to a point where you can hover and 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 land. But but as they were doing this. Um, there was a switch that was in the wrong position and the, and the computer was getting all of this garbage data through it that was confusing the heck out of it. Yeah. And so uh, um, their, their control panel sort of lit up with the number 1202 alarm, right? And, and each of their, their, the computers, which by the way, were, were designed in Cambridge uh, at Draper Labs in Kendall Square, Cool. Um, uh, there's, a, I understand, there's a get together of the Apollo computer veterans uh, uh, in in the area this weekend. This weekend? Yeah. Are uh, you going? Um, you could probably get in. I'm going to try and crash it. Okay. Um, and uh, and so, but yeah, we we had a major role in uh, in Cambridge in in getting people to the moon, uh, and so the um, uh, 
the the computer were very very simple, right? They're like, I mean, your watch yeah. is so much more sophisticated. So than what, what are computers. the computer parameters? I, I forget now. When I buy my laptop, it's it's got a speed. It's got right. You got so much RAM. Got RAM. You got so what much... was the speed RAM and, oh, sto and storage of? I don't remember, uh, but it was really was, crazy small. It was crazy small. It was kill we're talking kilobytes and not small gigabytes, enough. So right. simply opening up another monitor or, or screen caused problems. That's exactly right. And so people had to code much more aggressively in those days. They they had to uh, um, only do one thing at a time and do all kinds of clever tricks to squeeze the instructions in a in a in a small place. And and so the um, uh, uh, and so they would do, and the astronauts' computer language, right? This was no point-and-click, you know, uh, Windows kind of thing. This was like load noun thirty-two, load verb forty-four. Oh and man! They, and, and, so and, there's no and graphic it, user interface. No, no, no. It's number, a keypad, and switches. And and so it's it's you had to memorize all what all of these instructions did. Um, and so they had very limited ability to, to, to change what they were doing. But so they got this alarm, which kind of freaked them out. And so what do we do with this, Houston? And this, so this young flight controller, Steve Bales, who was responsible for that particular system, was able to say right away, oh, we're good on that flight. We're uh, go. We're, we're go. We're go on a 12-2 alarm. And if they, uh, if they hadn't really gone to school on that, as you were, t were describing earlier, they would have had to go to the shelf, get the manual out, look up 1202 and figure out what to do, but they just didn't have time. Right. And and the thing is that these people had just run so many simulations. So we were talking earlier, they, they, they had actually run a simulation where this uh, error had cropped up uh, fairly recently, and so they remembered that. But, you know, they'd been practicing all the different ways this could go wrong. And so it was just the, the professionalism, the preparation of the whole team that made them able to respond to emergencies like that and keep on going. It was it was really a pretty seat of the pants operation, correct? Oh, uh, in those last few minutes, absolutely. So uh, they were able to ignore that and they're getting down, you know, pretty close. At some point, they're going uh, two and a half feet per second. At some point, there was a yeah yeah, yeah. a fuel sensor, which is pretty also mechanical. And during, it sloshed and gave them an inc incorrect reading on how much fuel they had. How did that affect them or not? Right. So you're you're going, um, and so if you listen to the uh, last few minutes of the descent, right, there's all this technical talk, and they're like, okay, two and a half down, drifting to the right a little, that kind of stuff. And they're sort of reading out their relative, how fast they're sinking, how, far, how fast they're going. And then you, you, you hear 30 seconds. And so that's uh, Charlie Duke in Houston telling them, uh, according to your fuel sensor, you got 30 seconds of propellant left before we reach the point where you ought to like abandon and come home. And so it's not like you're going to run out of fuel, but they have a rule that when you're when your gas tanks below a certain amount, uh, you shouldn't you shouldn't continue because you don't have enough. Yeah, for, for but, the, but there's probably no way they would have ab aborted. At right. Point. I mean, there's been various discussions with the astronauts over the years since since Apollo, where things like that. There was a case in Apollo 14 where um, there was a wonky uh, piece of thruster, and <clears throat> there was discussion about aborting. And and all of the astronauts in those situations have have sort of said since then, yeah, we'd probably have gone ahead even if they told us not to. You got to ask us. I mean, they probably asked themselves this very question: if if you had a choice between <laughs> 
aborting and living and coming home and not aborting and being the first person on the moon and dying there on the moon, which would you do? Oh, no, I think I think if they thought that by aborting they would get home safely, they would have done that. These are professional test pilots. They'd made that kind of choice before. Um, but I think that if they – let me give you a slightly different choice, which is – you're going to die anyway. <laughs> do you abort and follow the rules or do you keep on going? So they probably run that risk reward in their head a bunch of times. I'm sure. I'm sure. And they sat down. They made they it sat down. down. And so, uh, it was any surprises on, on setting down? Like was there d dust upon setting down or, or anything? Yeah. So, so what happens is they, they actually switch the engine off about eight feet off the ground and, and fall the last few feet. Uh, just to try and minimize the amount of dust that they kick up. But still, there was an awful lot. Um, and that settles after a while. And uh, uh, and then they were able to uh, to look out the window and you know see this alien world that they'd arrived on. Um, and so you hear you hear them you hear them talking about the contact light where there's this this probe that drops from the uh, that, that's hanging underneath the the lunar lander that makes electrical contact with the ground that lets them know that they can switch the engine off. They fall that last few feet. They start switching things off, and then the uh, Charlie Duke in Houston sort of figures out from what they're saying that they're down, and so he goes, um, "Excuse me, we copy you we down, copy you Eagle," down, which is sort of that him saying to them. Um, Guys, you might want to mention that you've landed, and and then they go, oh right, right, right. Um, Houston Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. There you go. And then everyone, uh, as as you know, Charlie goes, so you got a bunch of guys uh, about to turn blue. We're breathing again, and uh, and that is um, you know the the moment when you know, we became a multiplanetary species that that uh, humans were on another world, uh, and then of course you know the 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 surprise in the schedule was that. NASA, in its wisdom, had said the next thing you do is go to sleep for a few hours. But it's probably hard to sleep when you're on the moon. Right. You're the first people that you just landed on the moon, right? For the first time ever. Going to get to sleep? No, I don't think so. So, so they tried uh, to sleep and said, the heck with it, we're going yeah, out. Yeah, they said, no, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, let's let's just go ahead with the, with the moonwalk. Well, let's, this is a good place to take our, our last break of the hour, and we'll talk about what happened there and getting back, which I think... Getting back is fascinating myself. Let's uh, let's break. It's W A B Z. Jay talking. My my hey hey. Hey, pay attention. I'm talking for a reason here. All night long with Bradley J. With Bradley J. W B Z News Radio 1030. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I know how this sounds, but something told me to turn on the radio. A voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio zombies all night long. You just have to listen. Bradley J's coming on strong. Jay talking. Bradley J. You're up next. It won't be long. WBZ. Can I talk? Talk to you. You gotta talk as well. The hour is gone. News Radio 1030. We gotta call for the Jay's talking show. 
Okay, we have uh, eight minutes to get back to Earth from the moon. We, we have Jonathan with us. Jonathan McDowell, astrophysicist, Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and he's a big fan of NASA and this, this Apollo 11 in particular. And he's discussing it with us, and we've arrived at the moon. We've just touched down, ready to go out and do some science. What was done out there, and were there any surprises? Um well, not immediately. So, so yeah. So they open the hatch. They come down the ladder, um, uh, and you know they make that famous first footprint. Neil makes the famous first footprint right in the dust, and that gives you a sense of the. There were some scientists who had predicted that he would just sink into the dust; that it would be like feet deep, and he'd be in like quicksand. Yeah. Um, but so he, he most was, astronomers knew that. Did wasn't he going gingerly to the case. put his foot down? But if the, the space, go the, it, right? the cat, the the limb itself would have sunk down if he. That's were also to... true. Okay. So they were pretty sure that wasn't going to happen. Okay. Um. And and so the first thing is they do what they call the contingency sample, which is you know if something goes wrong we have to rush for home. Let's at least get one rock. Right. And and then they set up a bunch of experiments. Uh. One of which is very is still working today. They 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 put an experiment that has like basically a mirror, but a special kind of mirror that can reflect lasers really uh, really well. And so that's sitting there on the moon, and they use it. They you shoot lasers at it from the Earth, and by the time it takes the laser to go to the moon and back, you can measure how far away the moon is to like a, an inch. So they can ch uh, check fluctuations in the, the yeah, they orbit, can ch changes in its orbit, and and all kinds of stuff. And so so you know that's something where you know we can use the Apollo instruments still today and and get reflections from. That's them. cool. Um, and uh, and so all kinds of other instrument, uh, instruments. To they were looking for moonquakes. They didn't really see any natural ones. So after a few Apollo missions, they started uh, the upper stage of the Saturn rocket would be smashed into the moon to create artificial moonquakes. So you could check the composition of the moon. Well, yeah, by, that gives you the interior structure yeah. of the moon. You can see the layers, right? And so we actually learned a lot from that. So we learned that the moon has several different layers, but it's, it's laid out a little differently from the Earth. Uh, and whereas the astronauts on the surface could bring back the moon rocks that told us, you know, what the history of the... And the thing is that the rocks on the moon are much, much older than typical rocks on the surface of the Earth or any of the rocks on the surface of the Earth because the Earth you know, has continental drift, it has erosion, it has all of these things, so the old rocks don't survive. So it gave us a really good understanding of the early history of the solar system. Wow. Anything else we need to know about being down there? Did they, were they overly rambunctious? Any surprises? The, what were the dangers? They were could have um, fallen down and torn a yeah, hole in your suit. You know, that's right. The first two Armstrong and Aldrin were were pretty, you know, reserved. Uh, and but some of the later astronauts had a bit more fun. And there were a couple who fell over backwards and had to be helped back up and and uh, were jumping and uh, uh, you know. Find one of the, there's an interesting paper actually that Armstrong and Aldrin wrote uh, that that's sort of all about describing how to walk on the moon. And it's very engineering -y. you know. They said, well, two methods of locomotion were, were, were evaluated, the lope and the skip. <laughs> you know, and they, they kind of go on about how, which one is better for getting around in one-sixth gravity. So, so they must have had some fun, but, uh, um, uh, but it was really very choreographed. And, uh, and it, the first, that first expedition was pretty, you know, just a couple hours on the lunar surface. Later on, right, Apollo 17 spent many days 
on the moon and with eight-hour moonwalks, three or four of them. And and so they got to really understand a bit better how to get around on the moon and do science. Okay. How, they were down there like 21 hours or something completely? That's right. And, <clears throat> and so they how did Talk about getting back, yeah. the challenges and how it went, and so, how, how so you, you do it and how it went. Yeah, so you've got these, the lunar module, right, the landing part is the launch pad for the get home part. Ah. And so they're in the cabin, the whole lower part of the lunar module, it, it was a big rocket engine that landed with the legs. They just leave that behind, they got another rocket engine, uh, actually between the two of them, which is a bit scary. So they don't have to lug that extra weight. Yeah, right, and so they just fire the engine, go straight up, and now they're, they make it back into orbit around the moon. And they have to do it exactly at the right time when Mike Collins and the Columbia is coming overhead so that they can meet up with him. Because on the Eagle, they got no heat shield. So if they don't link up with the command module, they're not getting home. And What if they missed it the first time? Yeah, the the command module has enough spare fuel that they could have adjusted the orbit and, okay. and met them. But they don't have a lot of leeway, and the amount of life support in the lunar module wouldn't keep them going for too long. So I think maybe they would have had one or two you know, extra tries, but, but not that many. But they did it on the first try, which is a big deal. Did it on the first try. Uh, they they lugged themselves and their moon rocks back into the Columbia. And you, you mentioned it wasn't one burn. They did a, a series of little corrections. Right, exactly. So you get into orbit, and then you sort of see how close you are to where you need to be, measure where the Columbia is, and go, okay, we need to tweak by a little bit. And so you have four or five sort of intermediate things. And this is something that they practiced in Earth orbit a lot in the mid-60s on the Gemini program. Mm -hmm. And so they really, you know, they did a lot of work in the mid-60s developing these techniques near Earth so that when it came time to do it on the moon, they'd be able to pull it off smoothly. Wow. I really appreciate you coming in and give us, giving us your point of view on this and, your, and looking at it through your expert lenses. Uh, super interesting guy. I hope you can come back and talk about something else if, if this was really fun. <laughs> Thanks you. a lot. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.